2 Peter, though, chapter 3 this evening, we continue where we left off uh, last time we were together, and uh, so glad that you could be back with us. By the way, there was uh, some exciting news this week for our church family, at least one family in our church, uh, the Snigusky's baby was healthily born, and uh, we're so happy for that, and uh, uh, Kaylee gets to be another Oh, well, I don't say, that doesn't make sense. I, have you ever heard it say you get to be a sister again, but you always were, you want to be a sister. But anyways, she is a sister of another child. We can put it that way. And uh, she's here with us this evening. And then Pastor Al's home, if you didn't already know that. And uh, so excited, so happy for him. I was able to swing by even today to go see him. And so, so glad that he's doing fine. Yes? Oh, yes, I do. And I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, Haley? Caden? Is his name. And his middle name? James. Caden James. James. Uh, very nice. Gentlemen, if you want to switch over to the uh, screen up here. We were in chapter 2 together last time. And uh, if you were with us in chapter 2, you come to discover, as we just kind of flip back there just for a moment, uh, in chapter 2, that as Peter ended that chime together in chapter 2, Peter found himself really consumed uh, with dogs and pigs. Remember that at the end of chapter 2? And uh, who was it that were the dogs and pigs of chapter 2? Who are these people that he's describing as dogs and pigs? False. false teachers, right? These are the false teachers. That's the false teacher passage. And Peter really comes down pretty strong, pretty hard on false teachers, to say the least. Uh, Peter uh, had some striking and some stinging things to say concerning false teachers. And at the end of chapter 2, I highlight that because he ends his chapter by saying, what the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing itself, returns to the wallow in the mire. That's the end of chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, oftentimes, and I've said this before, that the divisions between chapters can be unhelpful. But there are times when the divisions in chapters are actually abundantly helpful. And this is true in this book. We've already noted that there are sometimes in this book, Second Peter, that the divisions of the books are even the verses can be unhelpful in our study. But in the same book, we can also acknowledge the good. And there is good here because there's a clear line of demarcation between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 2, dogs and pigs. Now come over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. He's not talking about dogs and pigs anymore. He's talking about beloved people. That's a pretty big shift. So this is the conclusion. These are the concluding words to the book of Second Peter. And the use of the word beloved should jump off the page. Because as Peter comes to the close of this letter, he has a very specific group of people he wants to talk to. And these are the beloved. I find it interesting, even as we get into this right away, to jump and show you the word that Peter now uses is akapetoi, uh, which, of course, you've probably heard the word for love in the Greek, agape. And there's a lot that has been spilled about agape and phileo love that is not all that helpful because it's not all that distinguished in Scripture between agape and phileo. However, there is a reality here that Peter is drawing at, and there is a, there is a strong emphasis that is used in this word, beloved. 
This word beloved could also be translated in scriptures as dear friends. It could be translated as dear friends. That would be the idea of agape, which some translations use, like the NIV does that, uh, uses exactly that phrase, dear friends. But Peter uses this phraseology, and that's why I emphasized it at the beginning, Peter uses this phrase, beloved or dear friends, frequently in the chapter we're about to read together. Stay in chapter 3 and just see if you can follow with me the times that Peter uses this. Come to verse 14. Peter's writing and he says in in verse 14 of this passage, uh, therefore, he says, beloved, since you are waiting for these, there he uses it, uh, come backwards. I shouldn't have gone to verse 14 first. I, I should have gone to verse 8 first. He says, but not, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. There he uses it again. And then one final time in verse 17 of this same chapter, he says, you therefore, uh, beloved, knowing this beforehand. So this is a phrase that, or the word we could say, that Peter uses with frequency as he ends his chapter. What he's emphasizing is this. We know, of course, that the root of this word is the word agape, uh, or if we could put it in, in English there, agape. And this is the idea. And this is the truth. It is true to say this is, in one sense, the love of God. And now he's going to refer to and use the same word, uh, root, uh, for this word, uh, agape, and he's going to use it to refer to uh, these individuals, these children of God. And he's saying basically that these dearly beloved that, that he's referring to that have this kind of agape love, if you have this kind of agape love, it should be seen as it flows out. So the love of God that is shed in the hearts of true believers is the clear line of demarcation of the relationships. He has just talked about false teachers. What was his emphasis? If you remember in chapter 2, his emphasis is he comes to chapter 2, he's talking about false teachers, but he recognizes, even as he writes that book, that false teachers are cunning and they're among you, and so he's going to emphasize what they do. So you can, you can tell who they are. And the conclusion then is that they're like those that are like the proverb, dogs and pigs. Okay, so he's going to describe them. And now he comes to write to true believers. And he's saying there is something about true believers that should describe them as well. True believers should be distinguished by their love. Specifically their love for one another. So again, if we could just kind of backtrack just for a moment. And look, remember chapter 2. Chapter 2 that Peter has just given to is full of rebukes, and they are stinging rebukes. Peter's been pretty strong, emphasizing, of course, dogs and pigs there at the end. But as we come then to chapter 3 here in a moment, and we'll be in it the next two times we're together, Peter is going to be very encouraging in in his speech. But even as he's encouraging, there's a lot of overlap to what he's doing. Let's begin our reading just for a moment and just highlight just verse 1 before we dig in any further the other verses. In verse 1, Peter's writing to these people and he says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring you up, up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of remembrance. So, 
Peter is emphasizing something. By the way, what is the other book that he's written to them already? All right, that was the easiest question of the night. We got everybody going on that one. That could hopefully get started. Now, he's writing to them now a second letter. What was the purpose? What is the main purpose of 2 Peter? It's kind of his will and testimony. And it's his last words. It's his goodbye. It's going to be a warning. All those are true. Come back with me to chapter 1. Come back with me to chapter 1, verse 12. This is Peter writing to them, and he's going to say, This is why I'm writing to you. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. What is Peter's purpose in writing 2 Peter? It's a reminder, which goes hand in hand with what Kurt already just said and what you just said as well. This is his last will and testament. How do we know that this is his last will and testament, by the way? He said it. (laughs) He said as much. He indicated in this book, as we've gone through, that he doesn't expect his life to go much longer, and he's going to call to remembrance these qualities that you know. You've already been established in them. Come back to chapter 3 then. He starts his book, and it's not a very long book, by the way, There's only three chapters. He starts it in chapter one, saying, I'm going to remind you of these things. I want to, that's kind of how it's introduced. Chapter two, I'm going to tell you why I need to remind you of these things. There's false teachers coming in to undercut them. Chapter three, again, I'm writing, I am stirring up your sincere, uh, your sincere mind by way of remembrance. By the way, this isn't the only time that he'll say this, even in this very chapter. Come to chapter 3 and verse 17. He says this often in the book. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. So before we go any further, what's a pretty obvious application that we can make just from what Peter is doing right now? Peter has said, we know, this is just helpful in a way if we read the scripture. Okay? Reading the scripture, Peter is rep- repeating himself, and he's actually repeating himself, letting you know that he's repeating himself. Okay, so he's going to call to your remembrance those things that I told you before. I, he says it several times in his book. What is the application there? We could ask a different way. Why does Peter need to remind you to be okay with being reminded about core things? Why is that important? False teachers are coming. What else? How am I going to combat false teachers? What's that? The prophecy of the word. How many played sports a lot growing up? And you know, okay, right? Anybody play basketball? Okay, I played basketball. And you have the layup lines. You know what I'm talking about? When you do the layup lines, and you come in, and you just you just go over it. So if you ever want entertainment. Just go watch the layup lines at a junior high basketball practice. Those are my favorite. But there's, a, there's an intentionality there to it. He wants to, to just keep going about the same thing. I was talking to, speaking of junior high, our in previous ministry there was a school and they had a junior high basketball team and a varsity team and the like. I was talking to the junior high, the junior high basketball coach who had the frustrating job of trying to get his junior hires to stop shooting three-pointers like Steph Curry and to just learn to shoot the basics. And he just drove home the fundamentals over and over. Why does he, as a coach, want you to get the fundamentals down? 
Well, I can't expand your game beyond the fundamentals if you don't know the fundamentals. There are main and plain things about the game of basketball you have to be able to do. You're not going to be able to play much if you can't dribble, if you can't make a layup, if you don't know how to pass. Those are just basics of the basics. Even so, when it comes to false teachers, they're going to introduce, as Peter's already mentioned, and he will so again in this passage, all kinds of weird stuff. It's just going to kind of come at you from all sides, and all of a sudden, you're in left field talking about some nebulous topic that you were not prepared to talk about. How do you face that? Can you even predict which way they're going to go with the latest craze of their false teaching? And Peter says, what you need is to recall to remembrance the main and plain things. Never bore yourself with the basics of our faith. That's what Peter is saying by way of application. And so Peter writes, 2 Peter, to affirm them in truth about which they are already convinced. And he writes them to be stimulated, particularly as he writes them to them. He wants them to be stimulated in wholesome thinking. And there's really, if I could just show it to you real quick as we get into it, there's a, there's a, there's a and some part of you are going to have to think back to where we've been to understand the flow that I'm going to draw on the screen. So what Peter has indicated to you is that there's revelation that comes from God. Now, what is that revelation specifically that he is speaking about? What revelation? There's natural revelation and there's special revelation. This is special revelation, referring to what specifically? The Word of God. So there's revelation, and this revelation should spur in you stimulation. Really, stimulation of thought. And a highlight over here uh, in our very text that we're in this evening uh, I am stirring up for you your mind, if I can zoom in there for you to see it, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So the word is meant to stimulate your thinking. Ever heard it said, God never bypasses your central by, uh, processing units which preside between your ears to lead you to faith. So many people will say, well, it just, you, you just need, it needs to go travel from your head to your heart. And that's true. But revelation first comes to your mind. You've never, had a, you've never acted upon something in your life that you didn't think about, even if your mom would say you need to think more about it than you did before. But that's just how we operate. We think. Revelation leads to stimulation, and stimulation then leads to wholesome, wholesome thought. That's, that's ultimately what he wants. Pure thoughts, we could say. And what will be the wholesome thinking that Peter wants to, the stimulation of thought what, that leads to this wholesome, pure thought that just becomes a practice of your life, what is that and what will be the basis of wholesome thinking? And for that, we can go no further than verse 2. Look what he says. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What is that? What are the predictions of the holy prophets? First of all, what are the predictions of the holy prophets? It's referring to the Old Testament. That is exactly right. These are this 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 here. These predictions of the holy of the whole holy prophets. That's referring to the Old Testament. And when he's talking about the commandments of the Lord, what is he talking about here? 
this is the New Testament, and how can I say I know this is the New Testament? It says, it's through, as Justin just mentioned, through your apostles. Who are the apostles? The people who were taught by Jesus, who saw Jesus. Name some of them. Well, Peter. <laughs> okay, These are those that you're showing. This is what he's calling to your remembrance. So we need to be in little doubt as to where wholesome thinking comes from. It doesn't, it, we don't have to worry about that. It's impossible for us to think wholesomely lest we think biblically. And we can't think biblically unless we're studying Scripture. Just as an aside, if we are endeavoring to live our lives based on a nugget of truth every once in a while that comes from my daily breadcrumb, right? we can't expect to be thinking all that wholesome thoughts, can we? There has to be a progression of milk to bread to meat at some point, but there also has to be a greater desire in your own life, and that greater desire for the Word should tr- produce in your life more wholesome thoughts. And what's the next logical, if revelation leads to stimulation, and stimulation should lead to, if it's received well, wholesome thought, then wholesome thought should lead to what? Holy living. That's, that's the progression of thought that Peter's been driving at. I'm going to show you the revelation which should stimulate your thinking towards truth, which should lead you to meditate wholly on right thinking, and right thinking always produces right living. That's the best way to confront what he knows is going. The only way to combat heresy is understanding what the Bible has to say. It is no surprise, then, that Peter drives this home in the opening verses of his book. It's no surprise that Peter repeats himself as he comes to the end of chapter 3. So chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if we could just, I'm going to erase this again just a little bit, because uh, th- there's an introduction almost to this last section here. In chapter 3, just in these first verses, verses 1 and 2, Peter has given to us and basically said, let the word be your guide. That's his point in those first two verses. We'll read them again together. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through the apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. So just in verses 1 and 2, specifically verses 1 and 2a, Paul is talking about, or Peter rather, letting the word be your guide. And then... Beginning in verse 3 and making their way, verses 3 to 7, he is going to say, practice, he's not practice, rather, prioritize, and he's going to talk about prioritizing these, understanding these things. How, how, what, what are the priority levels? What are the things I should be familiar with? What is the most important thing? And here's what he says, beginning in the verse when he says, knowing this first of all. Now, if something like that comes up in your scripture reading, or even just in your casual reading, when the author says something as consequential as, as something like knowing this first of all, uh, what, wouldn't you say that this kind of becomes a highlighted truth for you? This is, this is like putting a star there. This is 
This is like any use of the, the things. And, and what is it that we need to know, first of all? That scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. What is he saying? Well, to paraphrase, don't be surprised by the existence of scoffers. Don't be shocked by that. Especially when it comes to these last days. What are the last days? That is a wonderful answer, Linda, and you're 100% right. The last days are the reference to those days between the first and second coming of Christ. If you have your Bibles, I don't have it on the screen, but Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, defines for us, I'll I'll write the reference down on the screen there, Acts 2, verse 17, defines for us what the last days are. And it defines it exactly how Linda just said it. In these last days, what last days? The last days where I will pour out my Spirit upon you. When does the Spirit get poured out upon these disciples? At the day of Pentecost, after Christ has risen. All these things are going to happen. When did the last days start? You can say your answer again. Pentecost. (laughs) I can just have you ready, pre-programmed to just keep saying Pentecost. (laughs) Absolutely, there you go. So these are these last days. Do we live in the last days? Yes. yes. Did Peter and his audience that he's writing to live in the last days? Yes. Yeah, a lot of last days. But these are the last days. And these la- in these last days, these scoffers will come in. These scoffers will come in. And this term, scoffers, could also be translated mockers. Mockers will come in. They will scoff at all kinds of things. They will scoff at the idea of living a godly life, certainly. But, (coughs) excuse me, chiefly among them, he says, these scoffers will come and they will scoff at. And what is it that they are going to scoff at? And here we can just kind of draw an arrow from their scoffing. With scoffing, he says, to this. And he he almost quotes what it would look like if they're scoffing. He kind of shows it to us. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all the things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what is it they are chiefly scoffing about? What notion that the believers believe in, that we believe in, are they scoffing about? Christ's return. Now why would a scoffer mock the idea of Christ's return? He wants to live as a way he wants. After all, remember, here's something about them that we should know. These are those who are following their own sinful desires. Of course, a scoffer is going to want to deny Christ. They are individuals who live self-indulgent lives. Michael Grease, in his commentator, puts it this way. For men who live in the world of the relative The claim that the relative will be ended by the absolute is nothing short of ludicrous. It is the heart of sinful men and women who want only to live for the here and now to deny any notion of Christ coming again. And we see that in the school classroom all the time. 
Think about it when you were a child, right? If you are fooling around in the school classroom and you know that your teacher has left for the day, (laughs) you may do more things than if you think your teacher might come back at any moment, right? Of course, these scoffers would scoff at the notion of Christ's return, but if you can convince yourself that the authority is gone for good and you can do what you want, that is precisely why men and women have a vested interest in denying Christ's return. As long as he is not coming back, there is no judgment to be felt in their view. So they will mock that. Where is this promise? And this, these skeptics refuse to look at the evidence that's staring them down right in their face. It is right in front of their nose. Look what he says. And I want you to notice, Peter still, while being encouraging to those who are believed, he's still strong. After all, he says, they, these scoffers, deliberately overlooked this fact. This is an intentional choice. They can see it. They quite probably know it to be true but they refuse to acknowledge it. And what fact do they ignore? What is the chief fact that they choose to ignore that is leading them to conclude that Christ will never come back? Basically, any notion of a Christ is foolish. What, what is it that, that has kind of been, the, the, the if you kind of followed the stream of their thinking all the way up to where the water starts, Where is it, and I may have given that away and I didn't intend to, where is it that they have begun to thinking in this way that Christ is foolishness and those who follow them? Starts at creation. Who it says? They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word. Now we'll get into the water idea here in a moment. But if you could just follow the stream of their thinking back to where the scoffing notion began, it began with the denial of the obvious. And what is the most basic denial of the obvious according to Scripture here? Walk outside. Right? right? Just, just see creation, just for a moment, and you will conclude, you have to logically conclude that there is a greater designer beyond us. But they see that and they scoff at that. Now, you don't always want to be the guy like, like all the preachers that are saying, like, America's going, to, you know, everything's going to mess, and every, the world's terrible, and I just wish everybody could just live in the days of Little House on the Prairie where all you had to deal with was little Nellie's attitude. Uh, <laughs> but the reality is that the world has always been sinful. But there's also true that there does seem to be a spiral, even in our own nation, And I can't help but wonder, and just a speculation outside the page of Scripture here for just a moment, if you can allow me so, that there was was a line of demarcation that was crossed with the removal of any kind of teaching of creationism from the public schools. That That is a beginning point of the denial that we now see and, and there's all kinds of wacky, weird stuff that now goes on. That you, I don't think even those that were arguing on the side that eventually won those cases ever anticipated would be the conversations that we have now. I mean, 
You could, if you, I, I, I can't, if I had a conversation with my great-grandparents about what we're dealing with right now in the schools, they would think, what in the world? But I'm just, just as off the page of scripture here for a moment, I just can't wonder, I can't help but wonder just a little bit if that may have been where we're going. And maybe you were thinking that too and just saying the truth out loud this morning. But notice what he says. The earth was framed, and, and I want us to just focus on something just rather interesting here, where he says the earth was formed out of water and through water. But what, what's, what is this idea about water? Why, why kind of this emphasis on water here uh, that, that Peter suddenly has like this fascination with on water? Again, here he's saying it. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you open to the creation account, there's water above, water below, there's a lot of water. But ultimately, it was by the Word of God. This is how the world was formed. And by the way, he says in verse 6, and that by means of these, what are, the me- what are these? What is the these here? Well, again, it's, it's the water and the Word. The world existed, and this by means of these refers back to the water, and by the same water by which the earth was formed and the Word that it was formed it was flood. What is that talking about? That's the flood right here. The world that then exists was deluged with water and perished. Is this no clear reference to the flood right there? This is the very reference to it. So even here, which is kind of interesting, maybe I should give Dino Dave, our apologetics guy, this passage next time he's come through and just say, hey, next time you pull out like, one of those fossils that he uses often when we had him this summer, and, uh, and he, he points at it and shows the reality of the flood, you can say, yeah, that, that, is an, that according to Peter here is an obvious record. I mean, we have records of the flood that should be pointing obviously to God, and that's what he's saying. Notice again, come back to, to the verse at the beginning. They deliberately overlook this. This is, a, this is a conscientious choice. By this way, it says in verse 7, as we came, by the word that existed, and by, verse 7, by the, and he not, notice he says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. By the same word. Now I want us to highlight something, and, and let me zoom out for a moment, because I want us to see the, the trajectory of the, of the word that Peter has now used. And it's, it's a clear indication that the God of creation is the same God now. So just it, on the screen, I'll put it down. So in verse, in verse 5, we have the word for creation. God created everything by his word. In verse 6, what is that a reference to? The word for the flood. This is the flood. God destroyed everything with a flood by a word. Verse 7, by the same word, what's going to happen? Destruction. Everything's going to be destroyed. The judgment day. These, the same word. It's interesting. It does make me think, just for a minute, if we can just come off the page for a moment, is, it, is there a specific word that he used 
like that he's going to use the same one? It, it, very likely, possibly. But nonetheless, the Bible is absolutely clear about something. What is absolutely clear in his lining these up, then next to each other, the God that created is the God that can flood the earth, is the God that can destroy the earth. What is his implication here? And the implication is that God's judgment is real and powerful, and for that matter, terrifying. The Bible is absolutely clear about the issue of judgment, if it's clear about anything else. And if we really thought about this at all, we would be struck with the great urgency to go and bring people to Christ. After all, if you die in your sleep without Christ, the Bible is clear that you will go to hell. And because believers should be the ones that are indicated here at the beginning of this passage, believers should be the ones that are the beloved If you love someone, hopefully, you're going to urge that person that you love to pay attention to the main and plain and not to deliberately overlook this. So, if you die in your sleep, you're without Christ. But what is he saying? Well, ultimately, as Peter writes this out, Peter wants us to plainly see that there are two there are, there are two very real truths that we should not forget about any of this. Number one, God's time table, God's time does not equal your time. Your timetable, God's timetable, your clocks and, and minutes and seconds and months and years are not the same with God. Go to verse 8. Verse 8, he says in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. God is not working on our time clock. We have, for things to happen in our lives, we have time, and, and if it doesn't happen in that time, we doubt. If you're trying to work out the return of Christ on the basis of time-space mechanisms you're going to find yourself woefully falling short. There was a famous book. I didn't, I didn't write down the author. You can look it up if you want. I, I doubt, it, it was 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Coming in 1988. Uh, and it was, at that time, very popular. And uh, apparently, he actually wrote a sequel, because he was wrong. So he wrote 89 Reasons Why the Lord is Coming in 1989, that was wrong. I don't think he tried it again. I, I can't, eventually, it's going to kind of not be as popular. And if you read old books on prophecy, you'll find this borne out all the time, won't you? There are tons of it. And not just in terms of, I can give you the time and date, because some are just smart enough to know you probably shouldn't try to do that, especially if you want to have a long-standing history of getting invited back to speak on prophecy. So they're not going to give you specific dates. Instead, they'll start talking about how the locusts are helicopters and get really bizarre. And the whole ideas are, you know, have you ever, anybody ever heard about all that stuff in Revelation? And it just gets really weird. And all of a sudden, they're still, well, I'm too knowledgeable to give you a date but I'm still going to try to figure it out within my timetable mechanisms. Kurt? Do you think most of that occurs because we forget that God created time? (laughs) That's true. 
Yeah, Kirk just said, I think it's because we forget God created time for us. I think that's a lot of it. I think it's, the, it's just the, the natural human fleshly desire to have everything figured out. Especially for us men, we don't like to admit that we don't know something. Right? Like, yeah, like where something is or where to go or ask for directions. And that's certainly probably true even for ladies, if we're honest, but certainly our men, we just wear it on our sleeves. We want to figure it out. Justin? But um, this kind of person, I think it's a little bit of both. I don't know if we can say exactly the kind of persecution, because this isn't written as persecuted false teachers. Scoffers, 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 yes. Yeah. And so we always think about scoffers as being persecution. Sure. In this instance, scoffers are the ones that are not holding to the generational books that we have here that have passed down. They're not holding to the prophets or the promises of God. So their scoffing is towards this, that God hasn't had. And so Peter reminded them again that he is not only acting these things, he continues to act. Yeah. And we have a record of that. Yeah. And, 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 and to, to leapfrog further, let's remember where these scoffers are as they're scoffing. In church. They're in church. <laughs> so you're, Justin's absolutely right. It's, this is, oftentimes we think of people that are against us as like the people that are persecuting us and fighting us. These are like, these are us, frankly. They're right there with you. Absolutely. So God doesn't work according to your clock is basically what he's saying in verse 8. So don't try to make him. And number two, God is not slow in fulfilling his promises. So, uh, oop, I used the wrong pen there. Slowness, particularly God's slowness on a matter, does not equal that his promises, his promises are broken. His slowness does not equal or does not mean that his promises are now broken, null, void, and we need to figure out a different way to interpret them. Again, come to verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow, uh, again, <laughs> using the wrong one there. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some men count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His slowness is a purposeful slowness. He has an expressed design and desire in view in his delay. What is the reason for his slowness? For others to come. If you'd write down the passage, you'd write down is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, This is good and pleases God the Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants. The church fathers distinguished between the desire of God expressed here and the decree of God, which is not expressed here. God's desire, which is expressed here, is that he wants all people to come to Christ. That's what God wants, which is distinguished from God's decree, which is not expressed here, and we do not know. No man knows the time or the hour or the pl- that, that Christ will come. So he says in verse 10, moving forward, based on all of that, based on what he has just said, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And this, this, this word but here that Peter now uses is meant to be a warning. This is meant to be a warning. 
we should be thankful that God is very patient with us. <laughs> if God wasn't patient with us, none of us would be here tonight. <laughs> okay? None of us deserve that. But, but God is patient. We should be thankful for this. But don't allow yourself to count on such things. That's the warning. Don't think, well, he's patient. I can just live and let live. That's not what he's saying. He has just said, yeah, it's delayed, but don't think just because it's delayed that his promises aren't going to happen. It's still coming. And so he says, therefore, the day of the Lord will come. It's still happening. It's going to happen. It'll be like a thief. What does he mean when he says it'll be like a thief? Like a thief. You don't know when the thief is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, don't know, like, you don't know when the thief is coming. If you did, you are complicit in the thievery, <laughs> if you will. That's kind of the whole reason thieves are thieves. They do it in secret when you don't know. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, he says, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done, it will all be exposed. What's the point? What's the point of all of that? Well, since everything is going to be destroyed, and by the way, everything is going to be destroyed, you need to figure out what kind of person you are going to be and whose team you're on. This, to me, is the compelling issue of eschatology, by the way, because a lot of people are fascinated with eschatology. A lot of church folks are fascinated with eschatology. Scripture, when it comes to eschatology, does not urge us to come up with some compelling framework of charts and diagrams. That's not the point of eschatology in Scripture. We just went over eschatology. And every passage will, that speaks of eschatology will mark with the same application. What's the point of studying eschatology? It's evangelistic. It's not just evangelistic either. It's also a call for sanctification of the believer. The point of eschatology is you don't know, ultimately. So get right. That's the warning. Eschatology is urging us to a certain kind of lifestyle. Living holy and godly lives, we live with a forward outlook. That's the point. If I know Christ is coming, hearkening back to my childhood schoolroom illustration, okay? They have the school clown, the class clown that's always misbehaving. If he is aware that the teacher is gone for the day, there is a certain attitude that he will have in the classroom that he will not have if he knows that the principal paces the hall and looks through the windows on a regular basis, Right? If you're aware that Christ is coming, there is a separate, there's a different attitude that you should have. That's exactly the point that Peter is making. He says, and I'm going to work backwards now. I want us to do something unusual as we conclude. We're going to go 13, 12, and then 11. And I know Peter wrote it in a particular order, and <laughs> I'm not trying to rewrite Peter's writings, but I do want us to understand that, and I think, I hope, that by going backwards a little bit, it'll help you understand better. Let's start in verse 13 when he says, but, 
I got to use the wrong tool again. But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Look what I want us to notice about those who are truly the beloved. That's who this passage is referring to. These are those who are waiting. What is that word talking about when he says they're waiting? This is an urgent expectation. When Christ prayed his model prayer, he said, what at the beginning was it concerns eschatology? What is a prayer request that we should be praying for? Thy kingdom come. come. If faulty lifestyles and sinful lifestyles will cause the scoffer to first and chiefly say, Christ is not coming, that's all a bunch of hooey, we don't care, then holy lifestyles should do what? Reflect Christ, Christ, but chiefly lead us, if, if, again, sinful lifestyles causes, causes the person to just reject the whole notion of Christ's return, it's silliness, then those who are living for Christ on the opposite extreme, if should be if you're not rejecting the second coming, you should be expecting. expecting the second coming. You should be waiting for the second coming. That's what he's saying. That's who we are. And verse 12, again, this is this leading on itself, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now here's an interesting Just an interesting scriptural lesson to be learned here. Waiting for and hastening. (laughs) Eventually, there's going to be a global warming, for sure. Um, Someone to ask, uh, I've actually had it asked, do you believe in global warming? I said, I'm not a scientist, but I do know that at one point the earth will be destroyed with fire. So in that sense, I guess so. (laughs) Uh, But hastening is the word I want us to focus on. Think about this. Can we hurry along the coming of the Lord? No. <laughs> and my knee-jerk reaction, even before this verse, was like yours. No, it's on the Lord's timetable. It's not up to me. But somehow or other, hastening, and there's no, you can look at it from the Greek and backwards and forwards. It means there is a sense in which holy living urges Christ's return. And here's all I could think that it would mean. Again, God's desire and decree are different things, but God's desire is that all people come to Christ. If more people are coming to Christ, certainly God wants to bring those to himself. Is this not why? He, er, Christ urges us to pray, thy kingdom come. There's a hastening there. And again, coming backwards, finally then, to verse 11, He says, since, in verse 11, all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And now let's put them in the order. What kind of people ought you to be? What should it look like if you are truly saying or believing or striving to be holy and godly 
What does a holy and godly person do? Let's number them. Number one, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire. But according to his promise, we are, number two, waiting for new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Question, are number one and number two on my list any different? Not really. So what's the point? If you are holy and godly, what are you looking, what should you be doing? You should be looking for Christ's return. Never heard the phrase, that person is so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. We've all heard that phrase. Apparently that's not true. (laughs) Apparently the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you'll be. You, You honestly should be walking around with your head up waiting for, expecting, just think about this, could, could, could Christ come back before we finish tonight? Yeah. yeah, that's pretty exciting. Would that maybe change my conversation with my friends? I think so. Like if I know Christ is coming back right now, I might be talking to my friends about how are we preparing for his soon return, right? If Christ could come back in the middle of my work day, is that going to change the way I work? Yeah, I don't want to be found sitting on my hands. After all, Christ himself demonstrated that and said, work, for the night is coming when no one's going to work. And then you go to the Gospel of Mark like we've been in Sunday morning, and you're like, I can hardly keep up. This, Jesus just never stops. He doesn't stop because he's working. So work has changed. My relationship with my spouse has changed. Relationship with my kids has changed. I mean, is there, a, is there an aspect of my life not changed by the thought that Christ could come back at any moment? Absolutely not. That's Peter's encouragement to you. And his encouragement that way is because, by the way, there are plenty that are scoffing about it. And why are they going to scoff about it? Because if you, if you take all that away, Christ is not coming back. Suddenly I can live however I want because there's no authority over me that even matters. That's Peter's point together. Questions, comments, discussion as we end our time this evening. Pastor Paul. Yes. Is there a difference that word, the word? He's using the, oh, the word? Um, good question. I, I don't have my tools in front of me, but I don't know the answer right now. Is it log on? It, I, my, 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 the, the word that's used here, if you want to look it up, is the word logos. Oops, I put, should have put that word this way. Logos, um, or in English, logos. Um, that's the word that's used. I'd have to go back and look at my tools to see if that's the word that he uses in John 1, but I would imagine it kind of is. So what, yeah. is, is there a correlation? Yeah. yeah, I mean, ultimately Christ is the word, which is interesting, by the way. A lot of people say, well, Christ, you ever heard it said, um, just as an aside, uh, you know, Christ never spoke about homosexuality. That's a popular thing to say right now. You hear that all the time. Now, first of all, he did. But they say, well, it's all in the Old Testament. Well, Christ is the word, even of the Old Testament. It's interesting. Christ is the word. That's who Christ is. He's the word, all of it. He's the word. Oftentimes they don't think of it that way, but that is who Christ is. Yes? Oh, good. It is Logos. He had the tool there with his laptop. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. 
It is the same word, exactly the same word, so there you go. Other comments, questions as we go into it tonight? Susan. Just thinking that about a lot about this water thing in the word. To our knowledge, anybody want to correct me? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. She's just another proof that it was inspired. Yeah, just to repeat what she's saying. To our knowledge, at this point, the Earth is the only planet with water on it. And uh, it's interesting. I, that, that's a really cool study. Someone better than I that's into science. You can line up all the scientific claims of Scripture, and they keep getting proven right. And uh, that's also true about history. Uh, there's all kinds of funny stuff with historians that say, well, this people group didn't exist, only to find out that it did. And uh, science is also true. And the others, these are great. Well, we probably, well, not probably, we will have just one more time together in Second Peter. Next time we come together, looking at his final words, uh, we won't have... Uh, the 28th, we will not have our Wednesday Bible study together, um, so maybe you can still read ahead and be in there, uh, but we'll come back the first Wednesday of the new year, and we'll be in Second Peter, these final, final verses together. It's my fault. I, I really anticipated and hoped when I planned out Second Peter to be done with Second Peter at the end of this year and go over and start a new one. The truth of the matter is, I don't know why we make such a big hullabaloo about calendar dates as if it's a big deal. After all, didn't this passage just tell us that it shouldn't be all that big of a deal? Uh, but, uh, so maybe that was just the Lord's humor in my own life to say, see, Caleb, it doesn't really matter. The calendar dates don't really matter. Uh, but nonetheless, we'll be done with Second Peter, and then we'll jump into another one, and uh, we'll come back together in that. And uh, I, I've... I've I've thought about the possibility of tackling an Old Testament book together. That would be a, a challenge to try to do together, but I, I've thought about it because we've done a lot of New Testament, and uh, maybe, maybe we can get away with doing an Old Testament one, but we'll see how uh, up for it I am to try to tackle something that, of that magnitude. All right, thank you for joining us. Hope to see you on Friday. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the word we can study together as we continued our journey through Second Peter. Lord, may we be uh, careful students of your scripture, and uh, we're thankful that we can spend some time, even on Friday, celebrating your birth, and again on Sunday, and uh, we pray for those that are traveling both to and from Palm Bay, uh, that they would be safe, to, safe on the roads. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.